Hello and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Flavia Munn, editor of Nursing Standard, and I'm here with my colleague, senior nurse editor, Richard Hatchett. Hi, Richard. Hi, Flavia. Good to be back again. Good to have you, as we always say. And the topic of today's podcast is professional regulation. So Richard has been talking to Christine Braithwaite, who's a Director of Standards and Policy at the Professional Standards Authority. Now, of course, regulation is something that pervades nurses' careers. But what exactly is it? I think sometimes this can be quite unclear. So, Richard, I'm hoping you can explain a little before we move over to Christine. Yeah, I think the issue with um, regulation of healthcare professionals is about public protection. But I think you're absolutely right. It's something that pervades our career from beginning to end. It's introduced early on in um, pre-registration education, the code, what it means to be a professional nurse, through to standards. We might encounter fitness to practice, consultation with the NMC. And in my work, I see it introduced into a lot of articles uh, that we publish. I think the the key issue here for me is perhaps three things. What do we mean by keeping the public safe? Uh, What's that all about? Also, whose responsibility is regulation? Is it all of our responsibility? What's the role of the individual, the employer, the organisation and the regulator? How does that all work together? And I think importantly, um, people might be interested to discover how regulation has evolved And at this point in time, what do we mean by regulation in terms of right touch regulation and proportionate regulation? These are all terms that help define what regulation means at the moment. So I'm hoping people will get a a lot out of this podcast. Absolutely. Well, let's take a listen to the interview with Christine Braithwaite. Today we're exploring what regulation in healthcare actually means and I'm joined by Christine Braithwaite, Director of Standards and Policy at the Professional Standards Authority in the UK. Now the PSA are independent but accountable to the UK Parliament. They help protect the public through their work with organisations like the Nursing and Midwifery Council who register and regulate people working in health and social care and the PSA's reports help Parliament monitor and improve public protection. They oversee 10 healthcare regulators, including the NMC, the General Medical Council, the Health and Care Professions Council, and the General Pharmaceutical Council. So welcome, Christine, to the Nursing Standard podcast. Hello. Hi, Richard. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, Before we start, I know you did want to say a particular thank you to everybody during this, um, uh, what has been quite a difficult time. I do. I do. So yes, um, just to say on behalf of the Professional Standards Authority, thank you to every registrant, to every health professional, to every health worker who is working so hard to keep everybody safe at this time. We're all hugely appreciative of the work that you do. Absolutely. I suppose the the first question, it might be deceptively simple, but uh, what is the aim of healthcare regulation? Well, very simply, Richard, it's to keep the public and patients safe. Um, and, And that sometimes feels a slightly strange and uncomfortable thing to say when when you know obviously we're dealing with people who are health professionals who've gone into the health profession because they want to save lives and because they want to help people and you know nowhere have we seen that better exemplified than this period during the pandemic Mm. Um, but there are particular ways that um, regulation does help to keep the the public safe Um, and I just want to talk about that a little later I'll sort of go on to what a regulator doesn't do Mm. as well just to help to try I hope to illustrate that. So uh, do you want to move on to how it achieves um, uh, this this public protection? 
Yeah, I will. So, so the courts have helped to define what it means to protect the public for health professional regulators. And they say that there are three parts, what's often referred to as three limbs of public protection. So there's a sort of fairly straightforward part, as it seems, which is protecting the public. So that involves things like making sure that registrants are competent um, and making sure that you know, they're of good conduct, that they're, they're going to treat patients well and properly. Um, so that's public protection. The, the second limb is declaring and upholding standards. So regulation also has a role in setting the standards and in calling them out. So um, in a situation where perhaps something hasn't gone wrong, the regulator's role is to say, no, that's the standard. And, and we're declaring that that is the standard. And that's what we expect all registrants to meet. So that's, that's the second limb, which is re referred to as declaring and upholding standards. And then the third limb is public confidence maintaining public confidence. Obviously, it's important that the public feel confident, otherwise they wouldn't want to go and see health professionals. So the regulator also has a role in its making decisions in thinking about whether it will maintain confidence in the profession. And that's not about self-interest of the profession. That's, that's not about um, you know, making people who are a professional feel good about themselves. That is, that is absolutely about uh, making sure that the public feel confident in being treated by health professionals. So that's the third part of public protection for regulation. Um, and regulators are, are set up by parliament. They're given very specific powers um, in relation to regulating health professionals. And they have four basic roles or functions. Um, so the first of those is to set standards. Um, and you're, many of you will be familiar with those. The standards are set out in your codes of, um, your codes of conduct and your codes of competence. Um, what a regulator tries to do when it's uh, setting standards for registrants is to essentially give you a broad decision-making framework because, of course, the regulator is never going to be in the room. They're never going to be with you when you're treating a patient. They're not going to see the presenting symptoms that you see. So it's you who has to make the decision. But what they're doing is giving you a framework within which you can make your decisions um, about clinical care. So they will set standards around things like consent, confidentiality, but they won't um, necessarily set very detailed standards for every procedure that you undertake. But that's their role in setting standards. And they set standards both in terms of coming into the profession, um, but also the standards that you have to continue to meet once you're registered with them. So that's their first function. And then um, they also have a role in education and training. So obviously you need to make sure that people who are coming into the profession are given the right sort of education and training so that they're going to be competent practitioners once they qualify. And they have a role in setting the framework for that and also in quality assuring the education and training that students undertake when they are training to become um, a nurse, a pharmacist, a, a physiotherapist, whichever health profession they're, they're training for. Um, their third role is in registration, so that's that they are required to um, check someone's credentials and place them on the register. Um, in the old days, the register was literally a book with a, you know, list, of, a list of names um, of people who were in it, which, which is where that reference comes from. These days, of course, the register is actually online um, and anybody can go on to one of the regulator's websites and they can find the register and they can check that a health professional is actually um, registered and is um, a bona fide person to be able to treat and care for patients. And the fourth area... Um, is fitness, what is what's termed fitness to practice. So um, 
the regulator has a role in making sure that registrants continue to be fit to practice. Now, some of that's done through things like continuing professional development, but they also run a complaints function. So if somebody, whether it's a member of the public or an employer, is concerned that a health professional isn't fit to practice, and then they can refer them through to the regulator and the regulator will then investigate and decide whether or not um, they think somebody is fit to practice. And we can go into that in, in a bit more detail. You can also find lots of information about this on our, our website if you want to sort of follow up on anything that I'm talking about today, which is at um, www.professionalstandards.org.uk. Um, so for the fourth one is, is fitness is fitness to practice. And just to say a little bit more about fitness to practice, um, it's, it's what a regulator is doing is making quite a different sort of decision to the sort of decision that gets made if, say, a patient makes a complaint about you either directly to yourself or if they make a complaint about um, you to your employer. Um, an employer might look into whether or not something went wrong in that individual case. What a regulator is doing is making a diff slightly different judgment. What a regulator is doing is saying, yes, something may have gone wrong in relation to that patient and in relation to that episode of care, but does whatever it is that's happened, um, is it so important that actually it calls into question whether you're fit to practice as a nurse, as a pharmacist, as a physiotherapist at all? So it's a different order of judgment that a regulator is making. Um, and, and the reason that they're making that judgment is because ultimately they can decide whether or not, if you're not fit to practice, either you need to have some conditions put around your practice, maybe you need to do some more training, uh, maybe you have, need to have a, a particular area of your practice restricted for a while, um, or, or in the most serious of cases, they can decide that actually someone isn't fit to practice and they need to be removed from the register altogether. So what's the role of the PSA, the Professional Standards Authority, in relation to these 10 regulators, healthcare regulators? Yeah, well, we're sometimes called, actually incorrectly, but we are sometimes called the, the regulators, regulator of regulators. I mean, actually, technically, we're an oversight body, um, sort of like the National Audit Office, if you're familiar with the National Audit Office role. So we oversee the 10 regulators, as Richard said at the start. Um, so that's bodies like the General Medical Council, the Nursing and Midwifery Council, General Pharmaceutical Council, the Health and Care Professions Council, which is a multi-profession regulator. Um, and um, we were set up um, following on from the Shipman Inquiry. Some of you may have heard of that. It was, sorry, not the Shipman Inquiry, the Bristol Inquiry was the first one, um, which followed on for the very sad death of, of children um, undergoing heart, heart surgery. And um, what Sir Ian Kennedy, who set that inquiry up, recommended was that there should be an oversight body because there were so many regulators and so many different professions. He said, actually, there needs to be a body that has some kind of oversight of that system. So we were set up and we had our powers um, increased slightly after the, um, the shipment inquiry. And we report every year on the performance of the regulators. So we actually assess the Nursing and Midwifery Council, the General Medical Council and so on every year against our standards for good regulation. And we tell them Parliament how well they're, they're performing their role. So we have a role in making sure that regulators do what they do well and properly. Um, that's, that's our sort of a first role. Um, we were also given a very specific power, which is to look at all of the fitness to practice decisions that the regulators panels make. So that's the final fitness to practice decisions. And it's about uh, somewhere between three and 4,000 cases a year. 
um, and we look at all of those decisions and we decide whether or not we think those decisions are sufficient to protect the public. And the reason that we've got that role is because if you're a health professional and you've gone through a fitness to practice procedure and let's say the regulator has um, decided to take particular action against you, you've got, um, you are able to exercise a right of appeal. But if you are a patient or a relative of a patient, um, you don't have any right of appeal against a regulator's decision. And that's because you're a witness. Uh, it's a bit like going to court. You're, you're regarded as a witness to the case. And so you don't have any actual right of appeal. So what Parliament decided was that we should have a right of appeal so that we've got um, a, a balance to make sure that regulators are focusing on public protection appropriately. They're not being um, overly lenient. I'm sure many registrants wouldn't think that they are, but in that, that's our role is to make sure that regulators are absolutely focused on public protection because that's what they've been set up to do. Um, and if we think that the decision is insufficient, we can then appeal that decision through to the court. And although we look at um, all of the decisions, we actually only end up appealing a very small number, um, somewhere between sort of 11 and 20 cases a year, it varies a little bit year by year. Sometimes there are other cases where we think maybe regulators could have done the things a little bit better, um, in which case we will write and tell them where, where we think they could have improved what they did. Um, but that, that's what that's there for. It's a sort of kind of a check part of the check and balance system to, to make sure that the public are absolutely being protected and the cases don't slip through the, the safety net that's there. Um, and then we have a sort of a third role, which is in relation to advising um, Secretary of State and ministers in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales about matters related to professional regulation, which is um, one of the things that my, my team does. So we give advice on that and we try and think of ways to improve the way in which regulation is done. So um, that's us in, an, in a nutshell. We do have another role in relation to accredited registers too, which are um, voluntary registers, because not everybody who works within health and care has to be regulated by law. Uh, so we also have a role in relation to overseeing accredited registers. You mentioned earlier, Christine, about the, the register originally being a book and now it's online. I wondered if regulation itself had evolved over time. Yes, it, it has evolved. It's been on actually quite, quite a long journey over the over the, the considerable period in which the, one of the first regulators which was set up, which would have been the General Medical Council back in the 1800s. Um, regulation has evolved from being professional bodies. So originally what happened was professionals self-organised, um, doctors and nurses and others, decided that there needed to be um, a set of standards uh, in their profession. And so they sort of came together, they formed bodies that were called professional bodies, um, and they, they voluntarily set standards for themselves and so on and held one another to account for them. And that was a situation that existed for quite a time. However, over time, um, it became, people sort of realised that really there was a bit of a conflict of interest in being a professional body and trying to regulate yourself. And one of the things that Bristol Inquiry found and the Shipman Inquiry found was that there was a tendency for a profession it was hard, quite hard for a profession to be truly objective and in, independent and impartial about itself. So it was decided that actually there needed to be a separation between what a professional body does and what a regulator does. So a regulator is set up solely to focus on public protection, as I mentioned right at the very beginning, whereas what a professional body is there to do is to essentially develop its profession. You know, it's there to look out for its members, it's there to help its members develop. Um, and so a professional body has that particular that particular focus. Um, yes, of course, part of that is also to do with public protection, 
but its main main sort of main area of focus is on on its profession and on its professional members whereas a regulator's focus is absolutely on the public and some of what a regulator does um, is also to do and i think increasingly regulators at the moment are are thinking through what the relationship between themselves and their registrants is because regulators have come to realize that it's very difficult to separate out registrants the people from the places in which they work um, and there's obviously an interrelation between where you work and how well you're able to practice and that sort of thing so so there's a sort of an evol evolution happening there in the understanding of the relationship that needs to exist between registrants and registers but if you can just hold on to that sort of important distinction between professional body focused on its members and its members interests and regulators focused on the public and on the public's interests. That's quite a helpful distinction, I think, in understanding what regulation is and what regulation is not. Um, a couple of other developments that have happened have um, been that there's been a real move to understanding that regulation should be proportionate to risk. Um, and we published back in 2010 um, a a document that we call right touch regulation and in right touch regulation what we argue is that um, what it means for regulation to be proportionate to risk is if you imagine a set of scales and you put patient harm in one set of those scales what you're trying to do is to apply just enough regulatory control around that be that be that standards or some sort of restriction just enough um, regulatory control to balance that out so that, that so that you 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 it's very hard to stop all harm from happening, but you're really minimizing harm as much as you can. Um, and that's what's called risk-based regulation. And it's also about focusing on the, air, the greatest areas of risk. So thinking about where, you know, where risk really matters and really starts to cause harm. Um, so it's evolved in, in that way as well. And the third area that we've, we've always said that regulators need to be, is, was we, I mean, we've talked a lot about agility and said that you know, regulators need to be able to respond quickly. The thing about the law is obviously the law takes time you know it takes time to go to parliament it gets time to have new acts passed that sort of thing um so it's not fast and yet what we know about healthcare and social care is, is that it's evolving all the time there's constantly changes you see really fast changes happening in technology for example and because because uh, regulation is tied into the law and there's a certain amount of deliberation and time that has to happen with those processes it, it, it can lag behind which can can be diff can be problematic for regulators um, and we've certainly seen during this, the course of this pandemic how important it is for regulators like all parts of the system to be able to respond quickly um, to, to new and sudden things that emerge that none of us were were well some of us many of us were not expecting and something you touched on was um, almost about the regulator not being in the room and this sort of thing earlier. And I wondered, um, and it, you were alluding a little bit to this, uh, I wonder if you could say a bit more about how regulation works as part of a wider approach to public mm. safety, um, you know, other people's roles who might not be part of the regulator. Mm, yeah, so reg regulators are just one piece of the one yeah. piece of the picture. Um, we did we did think once upon a time we we would try and sort of draw a draw a map, but we decided that the jigsaw became too complicated, so it wasn't so easy to do. So um, if you think about if, if you think about the controls that are there between unsafe care and the patient, there's first of all there's the professional. So there's what the professional does themselves in terms of training and keeping their skills up to date. That, that keeps the patient safe and um, you know they're the person right in front of the patient so they're the most important person in terms of keeping a patient safe um, 
and, and, and then many, many professionals are employed by employers, not all, of course, some are self-employed, but many are, also may, many are employed, may work within the NHS. So you've then got all of the systems that an employer has that keeps people changed, helps to keep patients safe. So that might be clinical governance systems within an NHS trust, for example. Um, yeah, so there's all those kind of um, patient safety systems that will operate within the organisation that you're working for. Uh, then you've got particular agencies and bodies that are set up to help keep, keep patients safe. So obviously there's the health and safety executive. Um, you've got the Care Quality Commission in England and the equivalent bodies in, in um, Northern Ireland, Wales and in Scotland. So the regulators of the places. You've got regulator of the products and the medical devices. You've got the medical uh, MHRA. Um, then you've got bodies like NICE um, and Sky in Scotland that will set uh, standards around clinical guidelines and, and help to approve all of those. Uh, so there's a whole range, uh, I, I can't list them all now, but there's a whole range of different bodies who are all involved in this landscape, who are essentially all sort of looking at the patient and they're all trying to think about how, how they and take action to try and make sure that patients are kept safe. Sometimes some of those roles overlap a bit, so it can all get a bit confusing. It's certainly confusing for patients um, to, to try and understand how this works, but essentially there's a sort of a matrix, a web of different organisations and people who are together trying to make a safe system for patients. I suppose the final two points are about current and future challenges, and then perhaps we should make comment about... Um, uh, the pandemic recently as well. So I'm thinking about the current and future challenges for regulation in healthcare. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll come. I'll, I'll talk about the pandemic second. I think simply yeah. um, it's sort of it's chronological. But um, everybody working within the regulatory field had come to the point of the last few years where we thought, you know, you know, really the regulation has got um, out of date. Um, it's not kept, it's not keeping pace with what's happening uh, out in health and care well enough. Um, you know, fitness to practice is, is you know, a very essential thing, um, but it's not nice for people that are going through it, whether they're registrants or whether they are patients and relatives having to be witnesses. It's quite a difficult and stressful um, process for people going through. Um, and so a lot of people working within regulation have been thinking for a while, you know, it, this could be, be changed and it could be a lot better. Well, the government issued a consultation um, a, while ago, a while ago now um, called Promoting Professionalism, um, Reforming Regulation, in which they accepted a number of the proposals that we and others have made to them uh, for regulatory reform. Um, now that's been delayed by, uh, first of all, by Brexit, um, and, and we're sort of waiting to see what's going to happen in relation to the timetable for reform going forwards. But everyone's agreed that there needs to be some regulatory reform in that. And part of that is about giving the regulators the ability to be more flexible um, and uh, to make it faster and more responsive to the things that are happening so they can change quickly. And we totally support that. In my organisation, we also think it's very important that greater flexibility is is, is um, uh, balanced out by greater accountability. So um, we still need to make sure that the public are reassured and they're confident in the things that the regulators are doing and the way that they're doing them and that they have proper scrutiny over them. So um, that's, that's the sort of changes that were, were, are in the pipeline for regulatory reform going forward. Um, and then, of course, we've had the, the pandemic. Um, and 
this is an unprecedented period. I don't need to tell anybody listening to this that we, we all know this. We are in a very uncertain time and an uncertain period. Um, and we're all sort of feeling our way, regulators included, in relation to what that means. Um, regulators have made very fast changes. So um, some of them have got powers to do emergency registration, which I believe was last used in World War II um, for the NMC and for the, the, G, the GMC. Um, and so they have uh, opened up emergency registration, putting back registrants onto their registers so that people could um, provide care to patients and the public where they were willing to do so. There have been changes to, uh, I also had to make some changes to education and training with students going through. Obviously, this has had a big impact on universities and how people train and on training placements so changes have had to be um, made in relation to that and they've also had to make changes to fitness to practice because it's not been possible to hear hold hearings so a lot of a lot of things have had to move online so there have been a number of adaptations um, and you know we and the regulators are all um, sort of meeting and talking together about the sorts of changes that have been made and some we, we may all decide that actually some of some of what's happened now is a really good you know, has resulted in some really good changes and some really positive things that we would want to hold on to go, going forward. So this is going to be quite um, an important period for all of us as we sort of reflect on on the changes and what we might want to keep, what we might want to resist and what we might want to start doing that we haven't been doing before. That's brilliant. Christine Braithwaite, Director of Standards and Policy. We've got quite a title at the Professional Standards Authority. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Well, thank you very much to Christine and also to you, Richard. I think that was a really useful brief user's guide to the professional regulation. Absolutely. Um, I think that's it. It's just to give people an overview of a little more on what regulation is about. Uh, it would be worth saying that the Professional Standards Authority website has some very useful documents that expand on some of these issues, such as what right touch regulation is, what proportionate regulation is. So it's worth a look if you want to look into any more detail into um, current views and what regulation is today. Definitely. And as always, we'll include some links to those resources in the show notes to, to this episode. So thank you very much for listening. As always, we love to hear feedback on the episode. So please either email us or you can rate us on Apple or Spotify podcasts and catch up with the series so far by going to rcni.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.